Welcome to the markets. Dateline Chicago. Friday, March 1st, 2019. Can you believe already into the month of March? Doesn't feel like it in many parts of the country, but indeed we are. Max Armstrong was very wise this week. He spent the week in Orlando, Florida, attending the Commodity Classic. So Orion Samuelson here to take our weekly look at markets from Wall Street to the wheat fields to the livestock feedlots. And we begin with looking at the numbers on Wall Street as we ended the trading week today. First of all, the Dow closed up 111 points, ending the week at 26,027. The S&P 500 closed up 19 points, 2803, and the NASDAQ closed up 62 points at 7594. For the week, the S&P 500 rose four-tenths of a percent, the Dow down two-hundredths of a percent, and the NASDAQ up nine-tenths of a percent. The NASDAQ, incidentally, rose for the tenth straight week. That's the longest weekly winning streak since late 1999. But the Dow fell for the week after nine straight weeks of increases. So after we've looked at that, let's take a look at some of the events that played a role in the market activity on this Friday. The S&P 500 and the Dow snapped a three-day run of losses today as Here we go again. Optimism about the prospects for a U.S.-China trade agreement countered downbeat manufacturing data from both the U.S. and China. And following President Trump's announcement last week of a delay in higher tariffs on Chinese imports, we got a report late Thursday that a summit between the president of the U.S. and his Chinese counterpart to sign a final trade deal could happen as soon as mid-March. But who knows? By Monday, that whole story could change, as it has just about every day since we got into this U.S.-China trade situation. But a slowdown in economic activity is not just U.S., it's other countries as well. A private survey showed China's factory activity contracted for a third straight month in February, although it did happen at a slower pace, indicating maybe a marginal improvement in domestic demand as a flurry of some policy stimulus kicked in from late last year. But then looking at home, the U.S. ISM data showed U.S. manufacturing activity for February dropped to its lowest level since November of 2016. And the University of Michigan survey showed consumer sentiment fell short of expectations during the month. The uh, day-to-day marked the first close above 2,800 for the S&P since November 8. The index closed 4.2% under its September record-closing high. It has risen 11.8% so far this year, bolstered again by trade hopes and the Federal Reserve's cautious stance on interest rates. 
Of the 11 major S&P 500 sectors, eight were higher for the day. The healthcare sector rose 1.4%, providing the biggest boost and supported by gains in companies including health insurer United Health Group, which bounced back after falling for much of the week. Footlocker shares up 5.9% after the retailer beat quarterly same-store sales estimates, and that helped drive a 2% gain in shares of Nike, the second biggest boost to the sector. And Gap had quite a jump today, up 16%, making it the biggest percentage gainer in the S&P after it said it would separate its better-performing Old Navy brand and close about 230 Gap stores. A U.S. Commerce Department report showed inflation pressures remaining tame, which along with slowing domestic and global economic growth, gave more credence to the Federal Reserve's, quote, patient stance toward raising interest rates further this year. Volume on U.S. exchanges today was 7.9 billion shares, compared with the 7.2 billion average for the last 20 days. So I guess you could call it a fairly quiet week uh, in the stock market. There were days when we had low volatility on the uh, market prices that we were looking at, and that was, I guess, a change that some traders welcomed, but other traders say we need volatility to make money in the market. Looking at oil prices, down about 2% today, ending around 3% lower on the week. Concerns there over global demand growth after weak U.S. manufacturing data overshadowed OPEC-led supply cuts and sanctions on Venezuela and Iran. The U.S. crude today down a dollar forty-two cents. A barrel ending at $55.80. The global benchmark Brent crude settled down a dollar twenty-four cents at $65.07 a barrel. So that's market activity that happened today, but now who wants to guess on what's going to happen next week? Well, let's take a look at it. In closely watched uh, monthly employment report is due for release on Friday. The Labor Department expected to say the unemployment rate dipped to 3.9% in February, down from a reading of 4% in January. And analysts think non-farm payrolls have fallen to 180,000 in February from 304,000 in January. The Institute of Supply Management will report on Tuesday its non-manufacturing activity index rose 57.2 in February. The same day, the Commerce Department expected to report new home sales fell to a seasonally adjusted rate of 590,000 units in December. On Wednesday, the ADP national employment rate is expected to show a rate of 590,000 units in December 
from 657,000 in November. That's back on the housing numbers, but again, the ADP National Employment Report expected to show private payrolls rose by 190,000 in February after rising 213,000 in January. And separately on the same day, the Commerce Department expected to report trade deficit widened to $57.3 billion in December from $49.3 billion in the week ended March 2nd. Again, Federal Reserve Regional Presidents will be on the speaking circuit this week coming up, and uh, several of them making appearances at economic meetings around the country. Bank of Canada will announce a decision on interest rates on Wednesday. Central Bank pretty much expected to uh, uh, keep interest rates steady. Retailer Target Corporation expected to post an increase in fourth quarter same-store sales on Tuesday, and that would be benefiting from its investments on store remodeling and focus on its private label brands. Holiday period sales at Target came slightly ahead of other U.S. retailers, such as Macy's and Kohl's. Department store operator Kohl's expected to report a growth in quarterly same-store sales Tuesday. More customers shop during the holiday quarter, which is said to have recorded the strongest sales in six years. U.S. supermarket chain Kroger Company likely to report a growth in quarterly sales on Thursday at stores open for more than a year. Costco Wholesale Corporation expected to report an increase in second quarter sales on Thursday, boosted by higher membership fees and revenue from e-commerce channels. American Eagle Outfitters, one of those apparel groups that has been challenged because of online shopping, expected to report an increase in fourth quarter same-store sales on Wednesday, boosted by its airy line of lingerie. U.S. teen apparel retailer Abercrombie & Fitch Company expected to post a decline in holiday quarter sales and profit, hurt by lower demand for its namesake brand apparels amid intense and growing competition. Discount store operator Dollar uh, Dollar Tree expected to post an increase in same-store sales during the fourth quarter, benefiting from higher sales at the namesake stores. All eyes, however, will be on the performance of its family dollar business, which has come under spotlight after activist investor Starboard Value called for a sale of the underperforming unit in January. So a lot going on. Again, the heavy earnings report season is over, but that doesn't mean that we're going to quiet down when it comes to reports. And uh, we can't go through a business report anymore without at least mentioning the Tesla company. Tesla. Wall Street reacted nervously today to Tesla's move to shut its network of showrooms and launch a long-awaited cheaper version of its Model 3 sedan, its shares falling as much as 
0.5%. And another automotive company reported today, that's Fiat Chrysler, reported a 2% decline in U.S. sales in February, hurt by lower demand for its Fiat 500 small city cars and Jeep Compass sport utility vehicles. And Kroger, I mentioned them earlier because they have an earnings report coming up, but Kroger has now said it will stop accepting Visa credit cards. They're doing that because of the higher fees that they find unreasonable. So on uh, next week, the division of Smith's Food and Drug Stores division will stop accepting Visa cards, credit cards, that is, starting April 3rd. And that's because of excessive transaction fees, at least according to Kroger. Well, we're going to talk to Rich Nelson about agricultural markets when we continue on the markets. For more than 150 years, CME Group has been built with your confidence. Without it, we simply wouldn't be in business. Today, we continue to work on new and better ways to protect you and grow your confidence in the markets. After all, it's our vigilance that brings you the peace of mind you need today and in the future. CME Group. Advance with confidence. Joining us this week in the studio is Rich Nelson, Chief Strategist for Allendale, based in McHenry, Illinois. I have to ask you first, do you speak Chinese or read Chinese? (laughs) I wish I did, especially (laughs) pronouncing a lot of these provinces, but no, I, I don't. So as an analyst, how much faith can you put in the numbers that we get from China, whether it be in soybeans or African swine fever? Certainly on the uh, on the latter, on the swine fever issue, there's a lot of questions for us right now. And, and honestly, this idea of whether we have a 20 percent uh, cut in China's uh, uh, hog herd this year or not, maybe that's a little, uh, a little uh, on the exaggerated part of things here. But there's no doubt there are issues going on. There is a nationwide problem. The question that we have, certainly on the U.S. side, is wondering whether it's enough uh, to encourage active imports. So far, they do have procurement a little higher than last year, but nothing like what we had hoped or expected here, given all the stories we've heard. Is the concern on their part on the supply of pork for their own citizens uh, there? You know, I think in some respects that is true, and obviously they have a government policy which uh, certainly uh, pushes those those viewpoints. However, we actually have had two other instances in recent years, 2007 with blue ear disease, which we call PERS, also uh, the past uh, 2016 uh, and 2015 years where government regulations cracked down on the small producers near those waterways and whatnot. So we've had instances in the past where we have seen production declines. Of interest, they only uh, offset those with imports, maybe 20 to 30 percent of that production decline. So I think we need to tail back our expectations right now. What of their imported commodities go into feeding their hogs? Now, obviously, uh, as far as this goes, uh, soybean meal is the biggest driver there. Uh, they are not active importers in a big way, at least as far as uh, US, as far as corn uh, annual imports, maybe three to five million tons. So this is really more of a soybean meal only issue for the most part. Do they import a lot of that corn in the form of DDGs? 
They used to, uh, in previous years, uh, certainly in the past uh, two or three years, with some government interference on uh, on issuing the permits uh, for importation. That is uh, really not too much of an import uh, issue for us right now. One of the issues in the trade disagreement is ethanol, because they have become a major importer of ethanol, have they not? Certainly right. In the past, uh, in fact, in the last full year where we had uh, some free ethanol trading without the government interference, uh, they were our number one export buyer uh, of U.S. ethanol. So this had been an issue uh, perhaps in the coming years as the government mandates or if they do implement this plan for a nationwide uh, biofuel policy, maybe this will get more, more play in the next, uh, next few years here. We have focused so much on the China-U.S. trade disagreement that we've sort of have overlooked the fact we really don't have NAFTA 2 uh, committed and confirmed yet. We have trade negotiations going with the European Union that could have major impact. How much do you look at those possibilities? These are issues for us to follow, and, and certainly we hope to get uh, further push and, and further movement into these, uh, into these uh, areas. Also, I'd like to throw in there, uh, if we want some further agreements with Southeast Asia, the area of the world which does have clear economic growth beyond just a, a moribund 2 or 3%. So, yes, these are all issues that we need to focus on here overall. And Southeast Asia, again, primarily soybean and soybean byproducts? Or? Exactly right. And hopefully we can actually in, in, uh, increase their uh, domestic livestock herds as well and push into corn uh, imports and other, uh, other imports as well. So, yes, uh, for right now they are more of a limited buyer, but uh, certainly the coming years with a growth in per capita income and food choices, uh, we'll certainly hope to uh, increase our, our movement there. And, of course, we have to talk South America because they really are the biggest competitor in the world market, particularly on soybeans, but they also do a lot of corn sales, don't they? Certainly do. And this is uh, something which just 20 years ago was not an issue, was pretty much the U.S. and South Africa and and perhaps uh, uh, portions of Eastern Europe. So no doubt about this, they have increased their presence on corn, and it uh, certainly is something that we have to watch very closely here. How much of a factor is Russia in the world trade situation? I know wheat, but Anything else? You know, for the most part, uh, aside from uh, energy products and whatnot, I think those are the the issues where we do have some uh, concern for them. And like you mentioned, of course, uh, a lot of their play with uh, with wheat has been a bit uh, a bit of a surprise these past few years. And we seem to be still priced out of the world market with U.S. wheat. Yes, and the way it looks right now, we probably need to drop off another ten to fifteen dollars per metric ton at the port. So on this one, uh, at this point, we still have some struggle with U.S. pricing. And one of the things I found fascinating is the fact that uh, they might start uh, importing some stuff from the East Coast into South America because of transportation. Certainly right. And that's always a big question for us and, and how they exactly uh, juggle around their, uh, their export responsibilities. I think that would be a big question, especially as we gear up these next few months into the heart of their export season. So a lot of questions for us. Uh, keep in mind for the soybean issue out of, out of Brazil – February to September, they're going to be running short versus last year's exports by about 5 million tons. And I see they're 45% complete on harvest? Exactly right. So we have their crop size for the most part figured out. Uh, this 114 to 117 million ton range for uh, Brazil's production. So at this point in time, this is a, a good crop, but uh, they're certainly down from expectations. I did get an email from a, a viewer this past week saying, 
Why do you spend so much time talking about South America? Don't they harvest the same time we do in North America? They don't. No, and they have an exactly uh, an exact opposite season of us, and, and this is important for us, especially in the export side, where more or less trade off uh, export shares of, of uh, soybean exports throughout the world. So, yes, it is something we have to watch very closely, especially with not much action going on with U.S. crops for obvious reasons right now. We haven't talked much about poultry lately, and that is certainly a factor in the protein market. How are we doing there, export wise and lo- and consumption? For the most part, okay. My my actually more big uh, my bigger concern with poultry side is their relentless expansion, which continues to go on right now at a maybe more reduced pace than just, just a couple years ago. The problem we have is this relent- relentless expansion. We've more or less maximized what the U.S. consumer can take, and now we're seeing wholesale chicken prices cut by fifteen to eighteen percent right now versus last year. So on this end, these countries have gotten, or these companies have gotten by, uh, focusing on the back end, the uh, the branded branded products, prepackaged chicken, those things. But certainly on the live and wholesale end, there are some struggles right now, which could be an issue for us on the hog side too. And vegetarians, have they made an impact on consumption of the protein meats? So vegans and, and, and everything of the non-traditional meat-eating uh, diet, this all, all counts for near from 3 to 5% of the U.S. population. Maybe you could argue that's picked up 1% or so in the past year or two, but uh, at best. But uh, for the most part, we believe that we'll have two separate food items or food uh, supply systems right now, traditional as well as the, the non-meat, vegan, and everything else uh, separate. So, Rich, as we get ready, I hope, to move into the planting season, what advice are you giving producers now on how they handle this market situation? We do look for some challenges this coming spring. We've got the soil moisture problem across the entire Midwest, everything from Ohio and the, and the Ohio River, River, Valley, uh, River Valley, as well as uh, many areas in the western Corn Belt. Uh, given the current forecast for above normal rainfall this spring, we do look for planting concerns. And there will be some preventive plant issues also in many areas. So in that respect, we look for a mild bump up in prices, get the corn back to 430 on the December contract. Soybeans may be touching $10, but uh, obviously that's not in the, in the cards for right now here. You think we'll see that bump in price in May like we did last year? I do think that uh, the planning issues will start it as a catalyst, and we might need something else to get us going to get those prices, yes. So do you suggest options to a lot of producers as the way to go? Yeah, we do, and it depends on the, on the producer themselves, what yeah. they want to put up for, uh, for uh, a risk uh, and other factors here, no doubt. <laughs> And we do seem to be expanding the use of risk management tools, are we not? I do think so. And even whether it's producers working with uh, brokerage firms directly like ourselves or using tools, not which are uh, a wide variety of options now offered through the uh, grain companies themselves. Yes, there is a wide variety now of tools. And in fact, even on the ag tech side, which is also involving marketing now as well, uh, there are many options to look at here. So looking ahead, big reports due out to the planting intentions, followed by planted acreage, and then we get into the monthly crop progress reports. How closely do you as an analyst watch those reports? 
report. Very closely. And one reason is, is this example right here. USDA's February conference numbers for acreage are always not that quite accurate. Uh, they've gotten a the direction right for corn movement, uh, corn acres changes in the eight of the past 10 years. But for soybeans, they've only been right on the direction of bean plantings in five of the past 10 years. So that's why we feel uh, the various tools like our annual acreage survey going on right now certainly will help provide a bit more uh, insight into these uh, very big questions still in front of us. So let's talk about the Allendale survey, for example. Uh, that will end when and when will we get results? So it, it goes all the way through next Friday, and we'll have results here the following Wednesday the 13th. So this two-week-long survey across the nation certainly invite everybody to help out here. How do they do that? Uh, very simple, call, uh, by either calling us, which is uh, 1-800-2-MARKET, or go on our website, allendale-inc.com. And take part in the survey. Certainly can. Whether they want to talk with somebody or just do it themselves on the computer, we're happy to help. Our thanks to Rich Nelson, Chief Strategist with Allendale, based in McHenry, Illinois. For more than 150 years, CME Group has been built with your confidence. Without it, we simply wouldn't be in business. Today, we continue to work on new and better ways to protect you and grow your confidence in the markets. After all, it's our vigilance that brings you the peace of mind you need today and in the future. CME Group. Advance with confidence. Well, we, I think, wound up the last of the big agricultural meetings this week with the Commodity Classic in Orlando, Florida. And one of the events that took place there, besides a huge turnout, the National Corn Growers Association, the American Soybean Association, the National Association of Wheat Growers, and the National Sorghum Producers announced their support for the U.S.-Mexico-Canada Agreement, USMCA, I call it NAFTA II. Mexico and Canada account for 25% of all U.S. agriculture exports, and the agreement preserves and builds upon the existing trading relationships between the United States, Canada, and Mexico. Mexico and Canada are the U.S. corn industry's largest, most reliable corn market. Mexico is corn's number one buyer. Canada, one of our largest ethanol importers. And we cannot afford to risk losing this market, according to National Corn Growers President Lynn Crisp. And so USMCA is the corn growers' top legislative priority for 2019. We will be working closely with the administration and members of Congress to get it ratified. Secretary of Agriculture Sonny Perdue made a lot of appearances this week, and at one of them, Secretary Perdue reiterated during a Senate hearing on Capitol Hill, the need to restore the original intent of the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, SNAP, which formerly was known as the Food Stamp Program. And the Secretary said this is to be a second chance and not a way of life. Secretary's Purdue's uh, comments come on the heels of the USDA publishing in the Federal Register 
a proposed rule to move more able-bodied recipients of SNAP benefits to self-sufficiency through the dignity of worker of work. Now, let's take a look at where the market ended today and where it'll start on Monday. First of all, the wheat market did not have a good week. It was under pressure, again, because of oversupply and U.S. wheat being priced out of the market. It took its uh, steepest weekly decline in half a year. And today, March wheat ended at $4.54 a bushel. That was up a penny and a half for the day. March corn ended at $3.64 a bushel, also up a penny and a half for the day. And March soybeans ended two cents higher, under $9. It ended the week at $8.99 and a quarter cents, and that's where it'll start trade on Monday. That wheat market continues to struggle, and we certainly watch that happening this week. But another story in live cattle futures. Live cattle futures roared to new contract highs today, supported by worries about cold weather limiting weight gain in herds. Most active April cattle set a contract high of $130.45 a pound. That topped the previous high of $130.10 on Wednesday. And helping to push prices higher, Cold temperatures in the U.S. Plains and the Midwest because cattle typically do not put on weight as quickly in cold weather because they consume feed to generate body heat and not to increase the weight of the animal. And so as we look at closing prices in the cattle market today, the June live cattle contract up 35 cents at 120 42 the April feeder cattle contract down a dollar 7 at 45 at 145 dollars and 5 cents and the June lean hog contract down 30 cents at 75.52 well every week about this time we run out of time but thanks again for joining us and we'll see you next week on the markets